Get in the game! <laughs> now! Ah! With sports interaction. It's the most exciting two weeks of the year. The Stanley Cup Finals and the NBA Finals. It's the best. Um, and you want to be a part of it. The Dangles Doozy section is exploding with mm -hmm. crazy props that are still available midway through the Stanley Cup Finals, which is where we are right now. Uh, you can bet before the game. You can bet live and play, which Jesse does all the time, and I've watched him do it. I love live betting. And, uh, of course, you can head over to sportsinteraction.com slash SDPN or download the app to get started. It's 19+. plus. Please play responsibly. This is Agent Provocateur with Alan Walsh and Adam Wilde. Powered by Sports Interaction. Want to bet? And we're back. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Agent Provocateur. Adam Wild. it's been a couple of weeks. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm sort of... Uh... Uh, there's been some things that have happened. I left my other job doing this SDPN thing full time now. So that's, that's cool. And, uh, beyond that, um, getting ready for the, uh, the draft, we're going to, we're all going to be down there for, uh, for Nashville. So, uh, I think, you know, hopefully I can sneak out for a beer with you at that point. Well, we're all going to be together. Maybe we do a uh, draft episode from Nashville together. I think that's a great idea. We should absolutely do that. All right. We're going to take that conversation offline. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Given our given our topic today, what do you think of my shirt? <laughs> well, I think I think it's going to blow people's mind that that your shirt could, could be completely instantly out of date uh, uh, very, very quickly. And, and I, I didn't even know that this was a possibility or that it existed. Um, so uh I, I think there's going to be people asking where they can get that shirt first off. So we're gonna have to figure that out. But the second thing I guess is, do you want to start with the topic today or do you want to quickly start with the senator's news? We know that uh, Ann Lauer was announced as the, um, the official owner of the Ottawa senators a, a few minutes ago, actually officially on Twitter. Uh, just wanted to kind of get your, your thoughts on that and, and the process and what this means for the Ottawa senators. Well, I've met Michael a couple of times. Um, most people know that he's a 10% owner right now of the Montreal Canadiens and mm -hmm. also was the owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs in the OHL, where he ran um, really a, a model franchise in, in junior hockey. And I had uh, a number of players who played there over the years. Yen Meshack who mm -hmm. ultimately was drafted by the Montreal Canadiens, played in Laval last year in the American Hockey League. Um, Jan Yannick, uh, who um, played uh, in Tucson and in Arizona last year, had 90-plus points with Hamilton in mm -hmm. the OHL. And uh, all of my interactions with, with Michael were um, of a very high quality. He's a respected person. Um, he took incredible care of the players. He loves the game. And, and really, I think that the NHL needs more owners like him on the younger side. Um, very progressive. Think outside the box. Um, he's going to be, I, I predict he's going to be very aggressive. I think he's going to um, give the okay for uh, senators management to spend to the cap. Mm -hmm. I think they'll very quickly become a cap team, not a team 
towards the the midpoint, but actually uh, do everything they can every year to contend and win. And that's mm-hmm. what the fans want. Uh, and I think that's really good for the league. Well, yeah, and I think that Senators fans have had a rough go with ownership over the last decade, and the team has had degrees of extreme success, you know, going all the way to the Eastern Conference Final five, six years ago, and then obviously falling off from there. Uh, And they seem to be a team on the rebound. So this is just sort of, you're saying it's more good news for a franchise that's had some good things happening lately. I think it's great news for the franchise, Mm -hmm. great news for the city of Ottawa and the fans, and I think it's also great news for the NHL. Okay. Wow. That's great. That's great news. We like that. Uh, I, although I would prefer they were in a different division from the Leafs because I would prefer that uh, nobody challenged the Leafs. I know it's coming. And uh, there's you know a little bit of health and a few more draft picks. And I think the Ottawa Senators are going to be a, a, a real force to deal with. Now, Alan, uh, today we are talking about how the NHL players could get rid of the salary cap. I mean... I guess they could technically get rid of it at any time, but this would likely happen um, over a, you know, a labor stoppage sort of situation, right? Like, I guess, ultimately, if they wanted to, they could do this today, could they not? It could happen today. There is no requirement that um, the CBA be expi- expired before they go down this road at any time the NHL players can decide they don't want to be represented by a union anymore and uh, and or the union can decide it no longer wants to represent the players, which right. leads to the same point, just a different route to get there. And I, I think that would surprise a lot of people because – you know, the last couple of negotiations that we were, you know, that we were around for, and you have to forgive me, I was a little early, I was a little young for the ones in 92 and 94. Uh, one was a, one being a player strike, the other being a, a lockout in 94. Um, you know, I, I think, I think people have just accepted that the salary cap is here to stay, uh, that it, they have, they have swallowed hook, line and sinker, the line from ownership uh, ownership groups that there's no way the NHL could survive in smaller markets without it, uh, that the revenue share plan is that comprehensive. All of those things we've discussed over and over again uh, are not true, but the NHL's media stick is a bit bigger than this just one show, so we are fighting a bit of an uphill battle here. Alan, this is something that that I don't think even people, unless you're qualified to talk about uh, uh, collective bargaining, you've probably never heard of the term decertification of a union. And and so I, I looked it up this morning just to make sure that I was right. Tell me if this if this works. This is from the Huffington Post. Decertification occurs when employees formally revoke the authority of their union to engage in collective bargaining on their behalf. Disclaimer of interest occurs when the union formally terminates its right to represent the players. Both procedures effectively dissolve the union and permit the employees to negotiate as individuals in real world terms what could that mean what does that mean what i just read to you so the the big challenge here for me and you today is to try to explain it in the way that everyone understands it yes um so i'm gonna i'm gonna take the best stab that i could take so that everybody understands 
this whole process. Um, historically, unions have been used in the professional sports world. And really the leader in that group was the MLBPA mm-hmm. in acquiring rights for players um, through inc- incrementally improving rights for players through every subsequent CBA negotiation. That's always been the goal, mm-hmm. you know, getting rid of the um, archaic draconian reserve clause, um, giving players the ability to achieve unrestricted free agency as early as possible in their careers, which can then they can establish a fair value for their services uh, in a league-wide marketplace, a robust, active, league-wide marketplace. The freer you are, mm-hmm. the more the market should take over, market forces should take over, and you're now able to negotiate with as many teams as possible and and ultimately go to the highest bidder. Right. Okay? Um, which every league had restrictions against going into the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Now, um, unions, and it started, like I said, with the MLBPA, um, with the site's decision in, our, in, in arbitration, had declared Andy Messersmith and Dave McNally unrestricted free agents mm-hmm. um, and, and ruled the reserve clause unenforceable going forward that's tied players open, to their, their team right yeah and that threw open the free agency doors in baseball but the nfl and nba had a much more difficult go at getting to unre- unrestricted free agency um and one way because they weren't having success in collective bargaining and the NHL is part of this group as well. One, one defense was for the, for the league. um, We're never going to negotiate this. So the unions filed antitrust lawsuits against the leagues and decided to try to achieve what they couldn't achieve at the bargaining table, achieve it through the courts. And some of these cases um, had some success. Mm-hmm. There was Oscar Robertson in this in the in the NBA. Um, there was uh, the Powell case. Um, there were so, and it was mainly the NFLPA and the MBPA battling against the leagues in court. Mm-hmm. The leagues always took the same defense. It was called um, the the labor defense. You guys are part of a union. You guys collectively bargain. You can't use antitrust law. There should be a carve out because you guys are part of a union. And, and th- those cases 
had some mixed results on both sides until it got up to an appellate court and an appellate court ruled the labor defense cannot be broken. That's a valid defense. Mm -hmm. And they, they created what became known as the non-statutory labor exemption. And that is basically if you're in a pro sports union or any union and you're trying to use antitrust law, uh, you just don't have the right to use it. You can't sue under it. You, you are not eligible for antitrust if you're part of a union. Mm-hmm. So some brilliant legal minds led by a lawyer by the name of Jim Quinn and, and Jeffrey Kessler started to question whether the benefit to unionization and pro sports was worth it or whether the players would actually be better off without a union. And there was a lot of debate, a lot of internal debate, a lot of analysis. And ultimately it was the NFL PA um, that became the first union to actually go forward and decertify in the midst of a collective bargaining uh, negotiation. And they decertified for the first time in 1989. Um, and the, the, the process is this, and it's very important to understand it. Without a union serving as a bargaining unit, Literally everything that a league does, um, restrictions on free agency, the entire process of salary arbitration, holding a draft, having having, uh, any kind of free agency other than total unrestricted free agency, um, having a draft, Mm -hmm. uh, um, escrow. All of those items are technically antitrust violations. And the only way a professional sports league can have a salary cap, the only way they can restrict unrestricted free agency to age 27 or seven years of service, the only way they can do that is through collective bargaining with a union, no union, all of these items are antitrust violations. So what's happened in our history? Um, the NBPA was in the process of decertifying during a collective bargaining negotiation mm-hmm. and ultimately settled. The NFLPA decertified in 1989 and settled and and reconstituted the union and most recently in 2011 the nflpa decertified and let me walk you through the process so this is this is fascinating because because i don't think people realize that unions have done this in pro sports in north america exactly and i think people will be shocked to realize 
how close the NHLPA came to decertifying in the 2012-13 lockout. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there is a direct connection here to hockey, and there is a direct connection here to um, the collective bargaining relationship that exists in the NHL today. And that's why we're talking about it. And that's why it's so important. So the first step is getting rid of the union. Mm -hmm. Does, does the union disappear? Does it go away? No. What happens is there's two ways to, um, uh, to no longer have the union acting as a bargaining unit. You can decertify. It's a more cumbersome process that will probably take between 30 to 45 days to do. And that's a process where the players sign cards saying they no longer want their union, the NFLPA, the NHLPA, to represent them anymore as a bargaining unit. Hmm. And you need 30% of the players minimum to sign those cards and send them to the union. The union collects the cards. It has to be at least 30% of the members mm -hmm. and sends those cards to the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, which oversees certification and decertification of unions. Once the NLRB receives the cards, they then schedule an election, a vote. In this case, they would be scheduling a decertification vote. And then 50% plus one of the membership must vote to decertify. Once that happens, assuming that occurs, the NHLPA, and we're using that as the example, will no longer be the collective bargaining unit for the players. The NHLPA will convert to what's called a trade association. So they can still represent the players. They can still advocate for players and, and argue in favor of player rights. Mm -hmm. They can still administer a group licensing program. Um, they can still do a lot of things, but they cannot in any way, shape or form negotiate with anyone on um, a CBA, they cannot represent, they do not, they no longer represent the players for collective bargaining. Mm -hmm. There is, by all intents and purposes, no union. Okay. And that is a very significant thing. Now, the other way to do it, which has a more immediate effect, is the union um, on a vote of the executive can do what's called disclaim interest. And you talked about it in your, um, in, in what you read from Bloomberg. That is the union saying, we no longer have an interest in representing the players. Right. And we are no longer acting as the bargaining unit for the players. They both accomplish the same thing. I think um, if you anticipate what the league will say, Here's how crazy it is. When this has happened in the past, in the NFL situation, 
um, and what was anticipated in the NBA in NBA situation, mm-hmm. the leagues basically will go into court and say, um, "Hey, judge, they're trying to decertify the union. We want you to find those acts invalid, and we want you to declare." that the union still exists and they are still the bargaining unit for the players. So here you have a situation where the players are saying, we don't want a union anymore. We've decertified our union. There is no union representing us. And the league is going into court saying, judge, don't let them do that. Don't let them do, don't let them decertify. We want you to order, declare that they are still the union representing the players. Why? Because it is only through having the a union acting as a bargaining unit mm-hmm. that you can have anything that otherwise would violate antitrust law. No union, no draft. No union, no salary cap. No union, no escrow. No union, no salary arbitration. All you have is the players acting, each player acting as an independent contractor, negotiating with a club, with an employer, just Mm -hmm. as anybody else would in the real world where they have a job without a union representing them in CBA negotiations. So, If you're working for Apple as a non-unionized employee and you decide after a couple of months, you know what? I'm not happy here. I got Mm -hmm. a buddy at Facebook and he's telling me Facebook's a great place to work. I'm going to go work at uh, Facebook. You can do that. If you sign a two or three year contract with the New York Rangers, once that contract expires, whether you're 18, whether you're 21, whether you're 26, when that contract expires, you are an unrestricted free agent. When it comes to benefits, you negotiate your benefits with the employer, with the club, just as you would any other aspect of the contract from um, uh, term, money, mm-hmm. the guaranteed nature of the contract, and so forth. And all of those things are subject to negotiation. But again, every player, let's say when they turn 18, if if Connor Bedard wanted to sign with the Toronto Maple Leafs, he can talk to all the teams in the NHL and sign with Toronto. Mm-hmm. Nobody has the right to draft him, and the league cannot hold a draft. Now, is this what I'm, this scenario that I'm painting, is it all to the benefit of the players? Because if it were, if it were, wouldn't everybody do this? Right. Right. Wouldn't everybody do this? And the answer is there are a lot of unknowns that would need to be litigated in federal court in the United States and possibly even courts in Canada. But here's 
the second part of the equation. And again, we got the concept here, union versus no union, players using the union to negotiate um, through collective bargaining or availing themselves of the antitrust laws. We've yes. got that concept. Okay. Pretty, sim if pretty simple, right? It's, okay. you know, if, if the, if the union exists, then there's, and there's collective bargaining, then you can't use antitrust laws to, you know, file, uh, you know, file against the league to stop the, the things like draft restricted free agency, et cetera. When, as soon as that union goes away, so then does the collective bargaining agreement. And we essentially, I, I from what I understand, we start from zero, right? Yeah. But let me, let me talk now about the next step, which is very important. So when the NFLPA decertified in 2011, um, and actually what they did was they disclaimed interest. The next day, NFL players filed a class action lawsuit against the league and against all of the owners in the league um, seeking hundreds of millions of dollars in damages and the lead plaintiff was a quarterback by the name of Tom Brady. And there were several other NFL stars as named plaintiffs in the class action lawsuit. Now mm -hmm. there was a lockout going on. The league had locked out the players, the player, the union disclaimed interest the players filed a class action lawsuit against the league. And with the filing of that class action lawsuit in federal court in Minneapolis, the players sought a preliminary injunction to enjoin the lockout to basically have a court federal court rule. You cannot, the league cannot continue the lockout. Right. And it does make sense. How do you lock out a union? Because that's what you're doing. You're locking out a union that no longer exists. Exactly. And yeah. that was what the player said. Judge, there's no union. We want an injunction to declare this lockout over because there's no union to lock out. We are 750 independent contractors. And you cannot lock out 750 independent contractors because that's called a group boycott under the, sh the, the Sherman and Clayton and antitrust laws. And that's a violation of antitrust. Right. And the district court in federal district court in Minneapolis granted the injunction and declared the lockout over mm -hmm. and the players won that round the league the nfl and the owners appealed to the circuit court and the circuit court stayed the district courts stayed the district courts ruling and sent the case back for trial without enjoining the lockout without. So now if the case took two or three years to try, 
there would be no football mm -hmm. because the lockout would continue until we got to a verdict. And ultimately, what then happened is through class council, because there's no union and the mm -hmm. union can't negotiate through class council. Um, Jeffrey Kessler was the attorney for uh, Tom Brady and several other of the players. He was also the outside counsel to the NFLPA. He negotiated um, with uh, the commissioner of the NFL and their bargaining committee. Mm -hmm. And ultimately was able to um, uh, settle the uh, uh, lockout and agree to a new, um, I believe it was a seven-year, at the time, seven-year CBA. And the NFLPA then reconstituted itself as the bargaining unit and entered into the CBA um, with the league. Right. Okay. So – um, there are other options legally beyond just a class action lawsuit, which any decision in any court would be binding on all the players in the league. You can file multiple lawsuits in multiple jurisdictions, 10, 12, 15 different lawsuits after disclaiming interest, after decertification, either or, mm -hmm. um, no bargaining unit. The players file the lawsuits um, using um, uh, the same lawyer or multiple lawyers. And now you've got literally 10, 12, 15 different lawsuits going in federal court in different jurisdictions that would all lead up to a jury trial. Okay. Okay. And, and uh, each individual case would not be binding on the entire membership. So you win three jury trials, you lose two jury trials, you're still litigating six or seven more um, for violations of antitrust laws. When damages are calculated, they're troubled, which means they're multiplied times three. If a jury verdict, if the jury ever awarded the players a hundred million dollars. The award becomes $300 million. If there's a class action lawsuit and the players win a billion dollar judgment for the league and owners violation of antitrust laws, um, the billion becomes 3 billion. <sighs> so there is a lot of bite there, but here's the thing. The players can disclaim interest or decertify the union at any time. They could do it today. They could do it today. And the, the, the players would then become independent contractors. They could offer to keep playing. The league yep. could keep going. It's happened before where the league has continued playing um, with a decertified union. Um, and the matter can then get litigated. Mm -hmm. We've got three years remaining in the current, three seasons remaining in the current CBA. Probably get some resolution in a court of law 
before uh, the at least at the trial stage, at the yep. district court stage, within that three year period, around the time that the um, CBA um, would have expired, even though the players would take the position that the CBAs expired from the moment um, they decertified or disclaimed interest. Okay, so right now, what's the question? The question comes down to this. Do the players have a greater benefit being unionized and having a collective bargaining unit representing their interests and to have a CBA or are they better off without a union? Mm -hmm. Well, let's see. We used unionization to achieve unrestricted free agency. We used unionization to create a pension plan for the players mm -hmm. um, in every sport except football to have some um, level of guaranteed contracts. And here's something I want to correct right now. I want everybody to please hear me when I say this. There are no guaranteed contracts in the NHL. There Why are no Alan? guaranteed contracts. You've drank the Kool-Aid. If you ever say again that the NHL has a guaranteed contract, NHL contracts are guaranteed for injury, mm -hmm. but they are not guaranteed for skill. What's that you say, Alan? Have you <laughs> lost your mind? NHL contracts are guaranteed. No, they're not. No, they're not. Alan, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Uh, they are guaranteed. Mm -hmm. Hear me when I say this. If a player is 26 or under and a team wants to buy them out mm -hmm. within the buyout windows every year, it's one-third the remaining value of the contract. And if the player is 26 or older, it's two-thirds, 66% of the remaining value of the contract. So, yes, NHL contracts are guaranteed for injury. Mm -hmm. You cannot buy out an injured player. But if a player, any player, is mm -hmm. not injured, he can be bought out for one-third, 33%, or two-thirds, 66% of his remaining contract. So stop saying all NHL contracts are guaranteed. They're not. At 35, they're guaranteed, right? Because the, there's like that that over 35 contract signing where you, you buy them out, but you still pay full price. I guess that means they're still not guaranteed, but you do pay full price, right? How do you, how do you qualify that? <laughs> um, they're not guaranteed. You can still oh. buy the player out on an over 35 contract, and the player will only receive two-thirds 
of the remaining value of the deal. Um, there was an amendment to the CBA in 2020 regarding uh, 35 plus contracts. Mm -hmm. If it's a multi-year deal and the contract is uh, flat or um, the contract is uh, backloaded and the team buys out that contract, it does not apply against their cap going forward. Okay. If the contract is front loaded, so the player signs at 35, a four year deal, and the contract is structured uh, 6 million in the first year, 4 million in the second year, 4 million in the third year, and 3 million in the last year, that's a front-loaded contract, and the club buys that player out after any year, any remaining years, and the AAV of that contract will remain on the team's cap until the end of the contract. Okay. So now, as long as the contract is flat in money each year, um, 4 million, 4 million, 4 million, 4 million, or backloaded, uh, mm -hmm. where the money trends higher than lower, um, that contract will not stay on the team's cap, but it does not impact how much money the player receives, which is still two-thirds of the remaining value of the deal. Right. Okay. That, that makes a little bit more sense. Now, obviously, there's some real real wins here for, for any potential union that's going to do this NHL or not. Right. And, and, you know, becoming an independent contractor means that you pay market price. There was though, um, downsides to this. Uh, and you know, I, I think Alan, I think it's important that we recognize that there was a point to having a union in the first place. Um, maybe those conditions have changed, but the NHL and the MLB and you know, the NBA, they all have unions for a reason, which is, the players were not getting proper offers from ownership. Ownership was working together to intentionally keep player salaries down, benefits to a minimum, tying players to uh, teams for their entire career, um, all the things that were happening in the 40s, 50s, 60s that were then undone, I think, by the 70s and 80s. Um, so if the NHLPA were to decertify, uh, if they did it today and they won, what are the downsides for the players? Like if I am your client and let's pretend that I'm a very handsome 40 goal scorer uh, up for a big contract. Um, what does this mean for me? Well, uh, I think one thing the league sells um, is cost certainty, which is a euphemism for the triple hard cap. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, and, and stability. And, and what you would have here is chaos. I cannot predict um, what will happen in the courts. Mm -hmm. um, it would depend on the jurisdiction, um, um, how quick it would take to get a case to trial uh, in front of a jury, um, any appeals that would take place. Uh, going to the circuit court of appeal and maybe ultimately having those cases consolidated 
and going up to the U.S. Supreme Court uh, for a ruling on on all of them, which is entirely possible. Um, in the past, uh, some sports labor cases have found their way all the way up to the Supreme Court, um, whether it was the federal baseball case uh, in the early 1900s that carved out a, a nonsensical antitrust exemption for baseball and baseball only. Mm-hmm. So baseball has a, a Supreme Court created antitrust exemption, but uh, basketball, football and hockey does not. Okay. <laughs> Nobody can really <laughs> explain that one. No. <laughs> and, and, and neither could the Supreme Courts in subsequent cases that received like uh, 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 the Kurt Flood case. Flood v. Kuhn went up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, yeah, well, uh, we can't really explain or justify baseball's antitrust exemption, but uh, we think it should be a matter for Congress to change and legislate in the area. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to upset the precedent, even though the precedent is ridiculous, which is basically what they said in their, in their ruling. Um, so, I, I mean, whenever you uh, – I mean, I was a, a trial lawyer in my prior life uh, mm-hmm. as a prosecutor. Um, you could never predict how trials are going to go. Mm-hmm. You may have a much stronger case than you think once you get before a jury. You might have a weaker case. The quality of the lawyers and the preparation are going to have a dramatic effect on the ultimate outcome as it should. Um, so those are all things uh, that nobody can really predict. What I can say is this, and and most people have no idea this occurred, but back during the NHL lockout in 2012-13, mm-hmm. decertification of the NHLPA after players were locked out for uh, three and a half months was a big topic amongst the players. Um, and Don fear educated the players on decertification, the pros and cons, what it means. And ultimately there was a, a negotiated settlement to the lockout in January of 2013. Mm-hmm. But I think right up until the time of settlement, the possibility of potentially decertifying was something um, that was uh, at the top of an everyday conversation about whether the players have reached the point where there's a impasse. There's no chance this is going to settle. If we don't have a deal done to be able to get in, at least a a 48 game season, which seems to be the minimum number of games that Gary will allow go forward without canceling a season. If we are looking at canceling the year, well, at that point, what do the players have to lose by decertifying, disclaiming interest, one or the other, and filing lawsuits in federal court um, availing themselves of the antitrust laws. Mm-hmm. 
that exist. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think it came pretty darn close to happening. We know it happened twice with the NFLPA uh, in 89 and 2011. And we know the MBPA was in the process, had started the process of decertification when the league led by David Stern um, and uh, uh, the NBPA led by uh, Larry O'Brien were able to push a settlement over the finish line and make a deal. Okay. And that's pretty recent. David Stern's a name that I know. It's a name that, you know, I mean, that's a, this, this sort of thing, the fact that, you know, the NFL did it in 2011, I think it's kind of fascinating. And, and um, this of all the leagues, the NHL seems to be the one that's locked down the most. And again, I think fans are, are concerned. And I think, I think the concerns are valid, especially, you know, teams in smaller cities, you know, we just talked about Ottawa being for sale and selling for, I, I think, believe the franchise tag right now, according to Pierre Lebrun, is $950 million is what it sold for. Um, right. You know, the, the, the players' salaries are about what they were, just approaching what they were pre-2004 lockout. The values of these franchises, which at that point in 2004 would probably be $200, $250 million, are now three times that. And I, so I would I, point, I, I, I would amend that, Adam. I would amend that. Okay. The the top salaries top for salaries. the top for the top players have uh, are are today as we sit here today um, around what they were in two thousand one. Twenty two years later, the highest paid players in the NHL are making around. What they're, I mean, highest paid player back in the early 2000s, Joe Sackick was making $17 million a year. (laughs) Okay. And, 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 and players, uh, there's no player in the NHL today making $17 million a year. And there were contracts back then from, um, uh, uh, Joe Sackick. Uh, Yermer Jagger, Dominic Hasek, uh, Chris Pronger, um, uh, Bill Guerin, um, a lot of these guys, uh, Paul Correa, uh, Timo Solani were 10, 11, 12, um, Keith Kachuk, 13 million a year. <laughs> and Man. players today are making around that, the top. But the average salary has certainly gone up. But the average salary has always included or been calculated using the amount of escrow the players have paid or do pay every year. This year, it's 10% of their um, base salary and signing bonus all go to all go to escrow 10%. Mm-hmm. Um, in prior years, it's been as high as 22%. So a player making for every million dollars in their contract has had a reduction of escrow uh, in those years of you know, 17.5%, uh, 20%, 22%, uh, and so forth. 
and then uh, calculate around 50% tax off of what's left. And, and like we've discussed on this show several times, um, players generally take home approximately $300,000 for every 1 million of face value in their contract. Right. Right. And that's yeah. where, you know, when you minus the escrow and minus the taxes, that's mm-hmm. generally what's left about 30 to a maximum of 35%, depending on where they are, what jurisdiction they're in, what state they're playing in, uh, whether in the U S or Canada, um, you know, and then there's other issues that we could talk about one day in the future, like RCAs, which have been in the news lately. Mm-hmm. Um, we can talk about, you know, how to um, create the best um, tax uh, advantages for players based on where they're playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's that's where it is. Um, right. Yes, yes. Players are making more today than mm-hmm. they've ever made. The question is, look at the value of franchises. Mm-hmm. Eugene Melnick bought the Ottawa Senators in 2002 for $93 million. And the franchise today is turning over at $950 million. So, Imagine all the years we've heard players say it's unsustainable to pay the players this kind of money. We need a cap. We need a cap for competitive balance. The cap actually creates a system that is the total opposite of competitive Mm -hmm. balance. You know what creates real competitive balance? unrestricted free agency that's right. what creates competitive balance right not I don't a, think a lot of people are going to like that comment alan well it happens gonna- to be it happens to be a fact it happens to be a fact but there is a league narrative that the media bought for so many years where you know a cap i i it's almost like automatic in my mentions on Twitter whenever I talk about getting rid of the cap. I love the cap. The cap's the greatest thing to ever happen. Competitive balance, competitive balance. You are, the cap is the exact opposite of competitive balance. Oh, well, if you have a couple of teams like the Leafs and the New York Rangers and the big markets are going to go sign all the players and there's not going to be any players anywhere else. Really? How many goalies can you sign? Yeah. Right? How many first-line centermen can you sign? How many top defensemen can you sign? There's 750-plus players in the league. Are you telling me the New York Rangers are going to sign eight number one centermen? Free agency is what breeds competitive balance, not the cap. I'm telling you, there's going to be a lot of people who call that specific comment out. They're going to tell you that. Well, I invite every one of them to buy a triple heart cap shirt. (laughs) Now, Alan, I think a lot of people are going to ask, and justifiably so, and and I think it's important, you know, for this particular episode, how likely is this? You said it got 
potentially close in 2013 for the NHLPA, uh, or at least there were rumblings of that. How close do you think? I mean, they're obviously not close right now, but you know, Marty Walsh has got quite the um, quite the streak that he's inherited with the NHLPA. They've, you know, by all standards, I think, have lost the last two major labor negotiations in 2004, especially, or 2005, I guess, uh, especially, you know, they lost the season and then got a salary cap and then a very aggressive salary cap as well with escrow and everything else. 2013, I I mean, I don't even know what changed except for the fact that now contracts were limited. You couldn't do the back diving deals, you know, the Ilya Kovalchuk, Zach Parise, Ryan Suter deals where, you know, you paid everything up front and then paid like a million dollars for ages 41 through 43, which the player was never going to play. They limited contract length. The rumor is they're going to try to do that again, you know, make it five years instead of eight uh, with your, your, your normal team. What does Marty Walsh, if Marty Walsh is looking at an option like this uh, to decertify, first off, it could, it could limit his power. But second, is that something that you would think is on his radar at the moment? Well, here's the most important thing from, uh, 2012 13 mm-hmm. that i want everybody here uh who's who's watching and listening to process the 2005 cba let's face it call it what it is mm-hmm. the union was crushed what came out of the full season lockout mm-hmm. bob goodnow Uh, left the union. There was a triple heart cap instituted and the percentages started at around 55% for the players of HRR. And as revenues grew, the percentage went to 57% for the players. Mm -hmm. Those were Gary's numbers. Those are the numbers that Gary said, this will give us a healthy league and we're never going to have to go through something like this again. And then from 2005 to 2012, uh, under this hard cap system, um, the NHL signed broadcast deals, um, Mm -hmm. the NHL health of franchises improved dramatically and we get to the end of the CBA and what does Gary Bettman say? Yes, triple hard cap system is a great system, but you know what? It needs a little bit of tweaking. That was Gary's comment in the media. The system is great, but needs to be tweaked. What's a tweak? Well, what do you the think it is? is? The tweak is going from 57% share of HRR for the players mm-hmm. down 7% to 50. And all of a sudden, everybody with the league and the few media guys that were in the league's back pocket, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50. Isn't that fair? Isn't that fair? 50, 50. Everybody's going to get the same amount of money here. This is great. You know? Okay. Well, 50, 50 represented 7% of HRR in 2014 and 2015 all the way to 2023. And you want to know what that is? That's 
over $3 billion with a B that would have gone to player salaries. That was the player share, which was transferred over to the owner's share and became the owner's money. $3 billion and counting by a little tweak. Couple that with um, $500 million for Vegas, $650 million for Seattle, two more expansion teams on the way to the NHL within the next three to four years that will probably be priced at a billion dollars each, and a CBA in three years that is coming up. What is going to stop Gary Bettman from saying, hey, guys, hey, hockey fans, the CBA is a great CBA. We, the owners, and we, the people at the league, really like it. But you know what? It needs another tweak. And what what, what are we talking about here This is all about dollars and cents. Well, maybe instead of 50-50, maybe we want 60-40. 60 being the owner's share, 40 being the player's share. And if you don't take it, we're going to lock you out. Mm -hmm. And for anyone who thinks I am in fantasy land and this can and will never happen. I just ask you to look into history at what's gone on when Gary's number in 2005 was 57% for the players and it became 50% and we lost half a season over it. Mm-hmm. We fought half a season and ultimately the league benefited by three billion plus in three years. Are we all going to be in a situation of here we go again? Another Gary Bettman tweak coming. Well, this will be very interesting then. And you know, the interesting thing about this conversation is getting closer towards that. This may become more and more relevant. It's not that long. It's not that far away. That kind of time passes very, very quickly. Um, so, Alan, uh, I, I guess this is something that we, we could kind of come back to. And obviously, you're not hearing any real rumors about it right now. But if you ever did, I think it might be something to refer people to, to this episode because the salary cap right now could be gone tomorrow, right into free agency. In fact, uh, there would just be, I, I don't even know if you would um, have July 1st set as free agency anymore. You could just kind of have the contract expire once the season's over, right? I mean, it's, it's really at well, that well, point. The contract, the contract says that it expires. If the, tr- if the contract is expiring I- I- this year, it, it actually goes until June the 30th. Right. So that would make July 1 the first day that you don't have a contract. But any subsequent contract, you could technically negotiate the end of the contract any date you negotiate. Right. There are no rule. There are no restrictions on contracts. There are no rules. So if a player 
has his wants his contract to expire um, April first. It'll expire April first. There's no trade deadline. Trade deadline is is a is a violation of antitrust law. It's a restraint of trade. Right. Yikes. Oh my goodness. You could technically a player can switch teams um a day before the playoffs start. <laughs> a player could switch teams during the playoffs. Allen. Come on. <laughs> there, are no, there are no rules. Wow. Okay. All right. Well, I think that's a this is a good place to 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 consider the 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 absolutely wild consequences of something like that. And Alan, I do appreciate you saying it because I think people do believe that they're locked in. This is the way it is. This is the way it's going to be forever. So um, uh, a fascinating kind of look at how this could actually go, how plausible it is. Um, and uh, I don't know. I guess we'll see what's going on in the next three years, right? I've had players um, that I've been having dinner with or sitting with, and they have complained about some aspect of the CBA, the cap, um, um, escrow. And, and I've looked at them and said, you know, you could get rid of it tomorrow. <laughs> and they look at me like I have a third eye right over here. And, and then I've walked them through this and mm -hmm. they can't believe it. And they can't believe that the NFLPA actually did it twice. They can't believe the MBPA was in the process of doing it once. Mm -hmm. um, and the NHLPA almost did it in 2013. So there you go. Amazing. Alan Walsh, I, you know, I, I bet the, the biggest weapon the NHL has going for it is that there's a lot of kids in their 20s, and I say kids because I'm not in my 20s anymore, a lot of people in their 20s who just want to play hockey and don't want to think about all this. Um, that's what seems to be going for them. If they knew all this information, maybe things would be a little bit different. Very true. All right. Well, we'll you know what? We'll wrap it up there. Alan, thank you so much as always. Great to be with you, Adam. Great to put together another episode and... Everybody, we'll see you next time. This has been Agent Provocateur with Alan Walsh and Adam Wild. Powered by Sports Interaction. Want to bet? Follow Alan Walsh on Twitter at Walsh A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts by searching Agent Provocateur and hitting the subscribe button. YouTube.com slash SDPN. 